The content presented in this podcast is solely for educational purposes and should not be used as medical advice to diagnose, manage, or treat any health conditions. If you or someone you know has a condition or disease discussed in this podcast, we would encourage you to create and implement a care plan specific to your needs under the supervision of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of experts in the field of fetal medicine and should not be interpreted as the standard of care. Hey, Womates. Welcome back to the Newsroom. This is Erin Moise. And this is Ken Moise. And tonight we have another amazing guest speaker joining us all the way from Dr. Snow Eyes. Where are you from? I am located right now in St. Paul, Minnesota. And how cold is it there compared to Texas? <laughs> well, it's all relative, right? But the winters do get a little chilly. Dr. Snowwise, would you like to introduce yourself? We always like to kind of get a little bit of background. So tell us about how you got into fetal medicine. What's your training been like? My notes from dad here say your career has already spanned three continents. And yeah. now you've made it back to somewhat of at least central time. Yeah. So yes. Um, so I'm the medical director at the Midwest Fetal Care Center. We're the uh, busiest and largest fetal center in the Midwest. And Dr. Moise is the reason I'm here. The long and short of it, I did all my medical training here in the U.S. I finished my OB-GYN residency, which I did in Albert Center in New York, and then took a job in Colorado. The plan was always, after about five years, to go back and do my MFM fellowship. And before I did that, I took a year locum in Australia and kind of got stuck down there for a little while, almost a decade. But the benefit of being in Australia, and then most of the time I actually spent in New Zealand eight years there, is that it's a midwifery-led obstetric practice. So as an obstetrician, you basically practice as a maternal fetal medicine specialist. And when I met my wife and we had a first child and I thought I was staying there, I, I did my formal maternal fetal medicine training down there at the National Women's in Auckland, which is the birthplace of transfusion medicine, as Dr. Moise knows. And 2012, Dr. Moise came down for the IFMSS conference in Queenstown. And because of his obviously uh, strong connection to alimentization and transfusion medicine, came to the birthplace of that, which is our hospital. And that's where we met. And he talked me to come to do a formal fellowship. And after completing my fellowship in Houston, we were recruited to come up here to uh, the frozen tundra, which is actually quite lovely right now. It's about 90 degrees today. And we've been up here and, and loving it. My wife says it's the place we never knew we needed till we landed. So, wow. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's a great statement. Yeah. So is it true that it gets so cold there that your dogs won't go outside to pee in the morning? Is that true? There are a couple of times we've been okay with the dogs just going to that bathroom in the house, but there are very few and far between. So yeah, there were, we did have the polar vortex two years ago where the gas pumps were frozen. That was a bit of an issue. Oh otherwise, my God. Otherwise, gas pumps froze? Yeah. Otherwise you just dress for the occasion. The way I always say it is like Houston's hot and you can only take off so many clothes and not get arrested up here. You just put another layer on. How do those electric cars work up there? Do they work in the weather? Not well. Yeah. <laughs> so don't drive a Tesla where you work, right? At least don't travel long distance. You don't have to turn the heat off. Yeah, because I hear the, the battery doesn't hold charge very much when it's that cold. Yeah. yeah. We had a couple of runs of the cabin last winter doing 45 miles an hour, jackets on, no heat on the car. So, oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. So let's make a distinction. You worked in Australia for a while, but... Yep. Everybody gets Australia and New Zealand, and that's a very different, like, people would yeah. really get upset. It's a big deal. I mean, you know, my wife, she's pretty placid, but you, you call her an Australian. It's like calling a Canadian American. She, she'll get her feathers up. Exactly. Exactly. She's, she's a like Kiwi. A 
Yeah, exactly. Australia's that little island off our West Coast. I want to point out, I think you had a pretty unique training because you did some fetal therapy, right? When you were in New Zealand, you did transfusions. Did you do lasers in New Zealand? I mean, that was part of the impetus coming here. We're doing lasers, but we weren't formally trained. And I just wasn't, I didn't think we're doing well enough. And the idea was to come do the training and head back. But as you know, at the end of my training, when I was like, okay, I'm said to my wife, I'm ready to go back to New Zealand with the extra training. She's kind of like, I kind of like it here. So yeah, there you go. There you shifting go. gears. Yeah. So when you came to Houston, you, you had to redo your MFM fellowship. Why'd you do that? Why'd you have to do it again? Because America is the only country that doesn't recognize Ranskog. So Royal Australian is the only college of obstetrics and gynecology is recognized in just about every country in the world, except for the U.S. So my I'm MFM afraid. training wasn't recognized here. So when I spoke with you guys, we decided to do that little hybrid where I do an extra year as opposed to two years for fetal intervention and do an extra year and get the repeat to give me the option of staying, which I'm glad we did because. Yeah, we've talked about that. You know, most of the intervention fellowships are two years, but you'd already had some background. So we sent that hybrid thing up for you. And I think that worked out really well for you. Yeah. Because you got pretty well trained. Yeah, it was good. You even played with some rats, I think, and did a little work with rats in the middle yeah. of all the. We did a lot of work with racks and part of the spina bifida research, which uh, was really educational. And I thought, you know, excellent. Well, Erin, you want to start some other questions here and what we're going to talk about tonight? Yeah. You know, Dr. Snowwise, dad and I had talked about this topic and I asked him, Hey, do you think Saul would do a podcast with us? Because he would be really great to do this particular topic just because in Texas, this is not an option. Mm-hmm. Not to the degree it is in some other states, especially after certain legislation that has passed. And so I think having you on to talk about this has been very great for us because you're actively able to do a lot of these procedures that we are not and kind of go into some of the nuances. So with that being said, tonight we're going to talk about selective reduction, specifically in the setting of monochorionic twins. So can you talk about how that differs from a selective reduction in a set of dichorionic twins? Yeah, it's uh, the biggest difference is the placental anastomoses. As we know, the monochorionic placenta is an average around seven to 11 connections that are allowing blood to flow evenly, usually evenly in about 85 to 90% of cases between the two twins. The normal method or the easiest method of doing a selective reduction, you know, discordant anomalies or, or other indications in dichorionic twins is just doing a simple potassium chloride injection. But because of the connections across the placenta and a monochorionic placenta, that medication, which is obviously toxic, is lethal, can potentially cross over and affect the other baby. So it's contraindicated to use that method. So the method of selective reduction in monochorionic pregnancy has to be cord occlusion to the um, anomalous twin or the twin that you're planning on reducing. You know, that, that makes physiologic sense, but I actually found a paper way back in like the 80s where, you know, this is before we talked about monochorionic and dichorionic twins. And they actually gave KCL in some monochorionic twins and lo and behold, the other twin died. So absolutely yeah. right. It proved the point yeah. in a small series, but yeah, it's a no-no. You have to kind of distinguish monochorionic from dichorionic. Because remember, we don't see it much anymore, but in the days of higher order multiples, where we had septuplet and you know large numbers of fetuses, those typically are dichorionic. And so... We would use KCL and those for reduction, but we don't see that much anymore. Thank you for the IVF people. Yeah. So. And so you mentioned just one of the different methods or techniques that we could use for selective reduction, but before we kind of delve into those a little bit more, can you talk about some of the specific indications in the setting of twins that would warrant or have an option of selective reduction? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the most common indications are, are the most common anomalies that happen, or I should say problems that precipitate from having a monochorionic pregnancy. When that egg splits, it never splits perfectly, and the splitting actually can increase the risk of anomaly. So the first and probably most common thing is selective fetal growth restriction. When that embryo splits, one baby gets a better share of placenta or the placental area is better vascularized, and the other one doesn't grow as well. So selective fetal growth restriction is probably the most common indication for us to do a selective reduction. Discordant anomalies, we certainly have a fair number of those. So again, the egg splitting process increases the risk of anomalies. You know, just as an example, a normal symptom pregnancy, one out of a hundred will have something wrong with the heart. And in monochorionic twins, it's about six out of a hundred. So these anomalies can be anywhere. We've had eight cranias, we've had hypoplastic left heart syndromes, you know, a whole slew of anomalies that have shown up. And then the last one is the sharing abnormalities. So twin to twin being the most common in about 10 to 15% of all monochorionic pregnancies where twin to twin comes up. Now, again, most people don't go for selective reduction, but I think there certainly is a role for selective reduction in severe cases. And then trap sequence, so twin reverse arterial perfusion, although I got to be honest, I, I don't call that a selective reduction, although it's a similar method. That's a non-viable fetus. I mean, we, we call that interruption of the blood supply to innate cardiac mass. And then there's those other rare things like a failed laser where a repeat laser isn't indicated or technically too difficult um, would be kind of the last indication that we've done selective reductions for. And then how about you ask a question? I can ask you questions. So I know you are wedded and love microwave. Yeah. I don't think we're talking about that box. I was going to say, let's clarify for the listeners. This is not make your food. Tell us about, first of all, what's out there? What do people use and what do you do? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, again, we never wet ourselves to one instrument. I think the more tools you have in your toolbox, the better it is for patients. And I think the different indications for each one, but a majority of our selective reductions, we use microwave. So, but just talk about, before we get to why I like microwave, we'll talk about the other things. So I think, you know, interstitial laser, which is basically using an 18 gauge needle, putting the laser fiber down, making sure you get the laser fiber past the tip. Well, remember that story from the Swedish guys that- uh, Oh, oh yeah. I'll tell, little, tell, yeah. tell the story. Yeah. So you got to be very careful with laser. Obviously it's a lot of power that's focused on the end. We all know that from doing laser surgery, but they were doing an interstitial laser and put the fiber down, but didn't get it quite past the tip and activated it. And just the heat from the laser and interacting with the metal basically caused the needle to explode, which was obviously a big surprise to them. I think it explodes a big word, but there's a lot of pop on the table. And they showed us that video at an international meeting. I love that. Yeah. Unless you're sure your mistakes too. So the old put the stair strip at the end. So you know where that fiber should go down the needle to, right? Yeah. Measure twice, activate once, right? There you go. They, yeah. And don't strip it and not move that stereo strip a little further up the needle. Yeah. Official laser. Yeah, that's one. And I'm not a big fan of that. I mean, again, it could be because of the disease process. We use that. We've tended to use that in earlier gestations, you know, 15, 16 weeks on the traps, not want to use the bigger gauge needles or instruments or in some of the selective reductions and severe TTTS cases, you know, outcomes with us and anecdotally haven't been great, but look at the literature, they fall behind the other techniques as well, as far as overall survival. RFA and bipolar cautery have by far and away been the most used things. And I think it's a big difference between the two. RFA is basically using a needle that has tines that come out the side and basically generates heat and coagulates the tissue and coagulates the vessel. And it works well. It's a 17 gauge needle. It used to be a 14 gauge needle, but the, the current iterations of the device are a 17 gauge needle. And I got to be honest, that's what I trained with. And I was very comfortable with, with you guys. And it's kind of by default that I ended up with microwave, but just for there, bipolar is also one of the old tried and true ones. The downside of the bipolar is you either have two choices, either a five millimeter bipolar or a three millimeter bipolar. The three millimeter allows you to put it down a four French port. 
you can put down a one milliliter scope with it. So if we have mono mono twins and we want to go in and do a cord ligation and then do a transection. And the whole reason for that is if you do the termination, there's still the risk of the reduced twin of causing uh, tension on the cord and causing cord occlusion for the other one. So you want to transect that. So you can do that with the bipolar, the small bipolar scissors, which are three millimeter, what we have. And then you can put your regular laser scope, your 2.3 millimeter, zero degree scope down and use the laser fiber to actually cut the core to transect it. Downside to the bipolar is again, you're using a much larger instrument, higher risk of membrane complications, P-prong, preterm delivery. And that's been shown pretty clearly in all the studies comparing bipolar to RFA. Microwave is the new kid on the block. There's only three papers out there currently, and there's a trial going on. One of our colleagues, Courtney Stevens, who is in North Carolina, was the first one to introduce it to us about five or six years ago at a conference. And it's widely used by the liver surgeons and for tumors. And basically it's great for liver, for uh, tumor destruction. The benefit that I see from it is that it's very focalized energy and you don't get the heat sink effect or the dissipation of the heat away from the area. So if there's lots of edema, just say in a trap. And there's lots of fluid. I think historically we, we've struggled with the RFA a little bit about the dissipation of that heat. The microwave focuses that energy a little bit more. You get a higher heat focus. And I think it takes less time in general, although it hasn't been studied, just purely anecdotal in my evidence. In my experience, I should say that it closes down the vessels quicker, which is what I think is really important in these cases. So the RFA has those three times that come out of the needle. Is this one point? Is it just? Yeah. So it's a single point. And basically you put the needle past the maximum area of heat is about a centimeter proximal to the point back towards the operator's hand. So you want to put the instrument about a, you know, obviously on target about a centimeter past and it comes in a 17 gauge and a 15 gauge. We mostly use the 17 gauge, but we have used the 15 gauge in one or two occasions, just the needle tends to manipulate. So in higher BMI patients, we're having trouble getting the needle where we want, use the bigger gauge needle. Oh, it's just to be able to move the needle better, but is the actual probe the same or is it? Yep. yep. It is. And then there's something about insulating this through the uterine wall is a little different than RFA, where all the energy's at the end. Yeah. Don't you have to have a special insulation sleeve or something? We don't. No, there's nothing. So we don't have to worry about the other benefit of, of RFA. There's no pad you have to put on the patient. We don't have to worry about patient burns or anything else. So, and again, there's the one thing I did find a little bit tricky with RFA, and I still think it's a good tool, mm -hmm. is just, you know, if one tine's not heating up, you take it out. And, right. You know, it's just, so we don't have that issue with the microwave. So tell us a little bit about doing the microwaves. This is your preferred method. Is it heat? Is there a thermometer and you can tell the temperature? Yeah. Or? So basically you set your wattage and we go anywhere from 30 to 45, depending on gestational age and response of the tissue that we're trying to heat. So you set that, you set a cycle for how long you want to go. And it's for us, usually it's around 35 to 40 watts at a three minute cycle. And then it gives you a heat feedback. So you know exactly where you are, you know, with your heat. So, you, you know, if you're not getting, if you're at 60, 70 degrees Celsius, you're, you're not getting to where you want to get. You want to get closer to 90 to hundred. And so I was going to say, so you're, you're looking at a, like in the RFA, we set it to hundred degrees mm -hmm. for a cycle. You're looking for that kind of thermal damage of whatever degrees. Exactly. If, if the heat's much lower than that, then either not in the right place, or again, rarely we've had issues with heat dissipation, but that's happened. Yeah, it is a problem. You're right with the RFA because you have one time, maybe out in the amniotic fluid or in a cystic area or something like you say, hydropic baby. And that tine just doesn't heat up because yep. each of the, each of the tines has a thermistor on it and you're yep. trying to get them all. I mean, the machine cycles when the average temperature reaches a hundred, then it sort of goes into a cycle on the RFA machine. And you're saying with this one thing, you just don't see that dissipation of heat. 
Very rarely. Very rarely do you see that. Yeah. Right. Just like with RFA, you see the tissues turn light as you coagulate them. See that SR going, you know, and again, the downside to the microwave is visualization of the needle. It's not quite as clear as the, the tip of the RFA. So you just have to take your time, make sure you're in the right place, especially after that first burn. You know, if you want to do that secondary burn, we usually like to do a secondary one, just a little superior, usually going for the umbilical vein, the interabdominal portion. So, you know, we usually do one burn and then go up a little higher and do a second. So you just have to just take your time, make sure you're uh, properly positioned. It does get a little harder to see after that first burn. So this always comes up because people don't know when to do these, but do you find that there's the best gestational age, particularly early, what's kind of your threshold? when you would ultimately like to do a reduction with RFA or microwave? I think, again, the Achilles heel of everything we do is the membranes, right? So ideally, we'd like to wait for 18 weeks. The literature is pretty clear on that, and our experience would back that up, that if we can wait till 18 weeks, if possible, that would be the time to do it. You know, when we talk about things like TRAP, in fact, I had this conversation with uh, Dr. Cliff Brock, my partner today. You know, if we have a totally normal TRAP that the patient wants to move ahead, do we have to do it 18 weeks? Or do we wait till 1920 when potentially the membranes are a little bit better? And, and we have that conversation with the patient and talk to them about the pluses or minuses. But I think getting to 18 weeks, I think is important. You like 18 weeks. And what's the latest you've done moment microwave? I'm just curious. Or what's the latest that your laws will allow? Yeah. So it depends. And again, going back to what I said before. So we've done a trap of 24, 25 weeks that developed okay. a high output failure, you know, in a woman who didn't want intervention unless absolutely needed. And even when she did all poly without signs of cardiac failure, she still wouldn't proceed. And so we saw three days later, and then there was significant TR and she finally agreed. So we've done, you know, 24, 25 weeks, that went great, but it's a whole different game now because now we're, you know, we gave steroids and she wanted to go for the pump twin if it didn't do well. So it complicates the whole procedure significantly, but that went well. But otherwise we can go up to 23 and six or a uh, selective reduction. That's based on your, your laws in Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually no law stating a gestational age in Minnesota. It says the point of viability. So we think just to be in line with, with most other states. I think that's actually a good point because you were talking about, and just for some of our listeners that may not know some of the things and reasons that we do, like Dr. Snowwise just mentioned, giving steroids and things like that, getting into that viable gestational age. I think that's an important part of counseling, of talking about do you want an emergency C-section for fetal distress? And as such, we would give steroids to help with fetal lung maturity. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the other preoperative counseling you do for these patients in terms of risks? You know, you've mentioned PPROM and you've talked a lot about membrane separation and making sure that we're trying to get to a gestational age to prevent that by waiting past 18 weeks. But what else do you talk to these moms about in your pre-op counseling? Well, first and foremost, you know, we talk about mom's risk first. I mean, she's our number one patient. Obviously, the babies are incredibly important, but without mom doing well, the babies aren't going to do well. But fortunately for these procedures, there's very few maternal risks. The risk of bleeding, risk of infection are all very low, and we've had no major complications with any method that we've used, interstitial laser, bipolar cautery, or microwave for moms. We talk about PPROM, we quote roughly, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20%, depending on the literature, risk of PPROM. And then the biggest risk when we talk about is the loss of the co-twin. And, you know, depending on the instrument we're using, depending on the gestation age we're doing it, we talk about a overall survival, which we quote roughly an 85%, but we break that down into neonatal and fetal losses. And I think, uh, you know, our experience, like I said before, with certain modalities at earlier gestations, we think that, that, you know, we quote about a five to 10% risk of fetal loss, but I think that's a little bit higher with maybe with interstitial laser. And I think it's the later you go, the less risk that is. It just seems that we're able to shut down that vessel much quicker. We have a much better target. We're able to position the needle better. 
in later gestations. I think that risk is lower. But again, we quote an overall survival rate about 85%. And you, you talked about shutting down the vessel. Maybe for our listeners who don't know a whole lot about selective mm-hmm. reduction, what vessel do you target in the abnormal fetus? Is there a target yeah. you always use? Well, yeah, there is. And I mean, so the whole risk of the monochronic twins is that if one twin passes, the venous circulation coming back from the placenta to the fetus that has passed is now being pushed along by the other twin. And that twin obviously has the risk of exsanguinating into its recently lost sibling. So what we ideally want to do is close down the vein. And so we go for the intra-abdominal portion of the umbilical vein. And I said, we'll go just above the umbilical cord insertion, try and get it there. And then just go a little superior to that with our second burn. And hopefully that's all we have to do. And I think you can see very quickly if you're in the right place or not. I mean, Dr. Maurice is something you taught me well. Is that if you don't get a bradycardia within the first minute, you're probably not in the right place. You should adjust your needle. And I think that goes for microwave as well as RFA. Obviously, bipolar cord, you, you're on the cord or you're not on the cord. It's a little easier to tell. So that is our target. Yeah, thanks for making that point. But we, we noticed that early along in RFA, if you started the cycle and you had reached that 100 degrees, that which you pointed out was your target, and you weren't seeing the bradycardia, then perhaps you were just going to not do the damage you wanted and you were going to get into trouble. So you stop the cycle and start all over again. Yep. So you, do you do that microwave too, if you don't see that bradycardia? Yeah, if we don't see any bradycardia, we'll do it, you know, and we'll stop. And that's why we have a one minute. So the way the, the cycle set up is it goes in one minute to run. So it pretty much gives you a chance to adjust, you know, if everything's going well, you just lift your foot off the pedal when it automatically starts, put it back down and start up again and uh, you keep going. So we'd go for that three minute cycle. But if we're not getting a response, then we'll adjust the needle position. Yep. And so take us through a little bit of like what the procedure itself looks like for your center in terms of, is it outpatient? Are they admitted? What kind of anesthesia are these moms getting? Are they under spinal? Is it just local? Yeah. And then like what medications are they getting as well? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. So this is an outpatient procedure for us. The patient comes in same day, fasting still, but comes in same day and goes home same day. We use a combination, just like we do for our lasers, remifentanil sedation with the local for the skin. Our patients do get nifedipine tocolysis prior or sometimes turbutylene, it's a provider preference. Then the procedure is done. The patient's observed for roughly half hour, 45 minutes. The remifentanil, as you guys know, wears off very quickly. They go home and then we usually do a scan on post-op day one. And that's obviously to, number one, ensure that the heart is actually stopped. But the vessel hasn't opened up and hearts restarted, which is incredibly rare. I've never had that happen, but we just look and just, I think more importantly to look at the other twin. And we always like to just out of interest, do a quick MCA and look at the heart rate and just check everything out. And it's reassurance from long. Yeah, absolutely. And what does the follow-up and surveillance look like for the remainder of this pregnancy? Yeah, you know, I don't think there's anything really good to direct us. We kind of feel if something's been like this, we at least recommend growth scans every four weeks, but we don't recommend testing or anything else. And we treat it as a singleton pregnancy. And the goal is to try and get to term and deliver. So it'd be just like if we had a loss in a twin to twin, you know, after a laser, we were just following along. You know, I find it's interesting. A long time ago, there was literature about a coagulopathy in the mother when you lost yeah. a twin. And we don't, with these procedures, we don't even check things right on that. So. Yeah, we, we just let them go along. One thing we didn't touch on, maybe, do you give routine antibiotics? Yes, we definitely do. We give NSF. We give NSF for any uh, significant procedure we do gotcha. or other appropriate prophylaxis if they're allergic to it. Yeah. Sorry about that. 
Well, Lumates, that wraps up part one with our special guest, Dr. Saul Snowwise, talking about selective reductions. And stay tuned for part two next week. Dad, what are we going to get into next week? Well, I think we're going to talk about the various indications and how it may change our techniques. Things like monoamniotic twins and trap twin anemia, polycythemia. No, sorry. Try again. Twin reverse arterial perfusion sequence and even discord anomaly. So we'll move on to different indications and how we apply different techniques for indications. But in the meantime, this is Aaron Moe signing off. And this is Ken Moe's More to Follow. See ya.